0: Turn to 1st Peter, the 4th chapter. Brother Keith Robinson has a scripture reading for us.
1: Reading from 1st Peter, chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. 1st Peter 4, 7 through 11. I'll be reading from the English Standard. The end of all things is at hand. in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.
0: Most of you here this morning know that uh, Eddie Parrish was supposed to be preaching today, but he decided to get throat trouble, and so uh, he's not preaching today. We're glad you're here, and we appreciate uh, you coming and being a part of our worship service. And we hope that you'll come back at 6 o'clock when we meet again. When Peter wrote this letter that we call 1 Peter, he had to warn his readers that they were going to have to face suffering for their faith. That would not be a pleasant message for him to deliver, nor would it be a pleasant message for them to receive. But but Peter understood that persecution was not just a possibility in the first century. It was a reality. And, and it would help these Christians to be prepared for that persecution. It, it would also help them not to be surprised by it. I hope your Bible is open to 1 Peter 4. If you will note in verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Don't be shocked by persecution, Peter says. And and, and in this he's echoing exactly the words of the Apostle Paul In 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, when he says, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Being a Christian in the first century was not without its difficulties. And and this doesn't mean that the message that Peter had to deliver would be easy to accept. Especially if these Christians understood that they were suffering for righteousness' sake, not for anything wrong that they had done. It's one thing to suffer if you've done something wrong. And incidentally, Peter addresses that in the same lesson, in the same letter. But it's something else when you have to suffer and you know that you haven't really done anything deserving suffering. To help them... Be prepared for this. Peter reminded them of a most important thing, and that was Christ's suffering. If you go back to chapter 3 and you look at verse 18, he writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Jesus suffered suffered for sins, but not his own sins because he was sinless. The just one suffered for unjust ones. And that, my dear friends, includes you and me. He didn't suffer because he had done anything wrong. And he suffered in behalf of someone else, including us. In chapter 4 of 1 Peter, the apostle notes this, having mentioned the suffering of Christ. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. Having the mind of Christ, a submissive mind, would have to include a willingness to go through suffering for righteousness' sake. If you want to be Christ-like, you have to suffer like Christ. Now, Peter notes this, and I think it's important. Verse 1, the second part of the verse. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Don't misunderstand what that means, please. It means that those who go through suffering willingly for righteousness sake are going to be the kind of people who have stopped living a sinful life. It doesn't mean they never sin. We know that that would contradict what is taught in other places. But we also know this, that they don't continue to live sinfully in their lives. They have stopped that sinfulness. Some people have lived shameful lives. Peter calls them Gentile lives. <laughs> and, and please don't think that, that uh, Peter is involved in any kind of racial profiling or anything. He's just being honest. And Peter certainly understood that Jews were not perfect in the way they lived, but Gentiles were a lot worse. And and, and Peter names some of the things that they were involved in. Verse 3, he says, when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. And and this reminds us of, uh, of Romans 1 because Paul paints a similar picture of how degraded Gentile life had become. And incidentally, that's what happens when you shut God out of your life. No life can help but become degraded that shuts God out. Now, these sinful things that were being done by some of these very people were nothing to be proud of, but too true to deny. Christians don't boast about how sinful they were. But neither do they try to hide the fact that they were sinful. Verse two catches our attention. At least it caught mine. Because Peter says that you should know that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. The rest of his time. That's important. Enough time has been wasted already in life doing the wrong things. Now it's time to be sure that we're living right lives, not wrong lives. And you will notice in verse 3, incidentally, that Peter uses the word we, not he. That means he identifies with them. That doesn't mean that Peter had done all of these terrible things himself, but he understands that he, like them, was a sinner. But a change of living can be costly. You would think that one who determines to do right would be applauded by his desire to be right by everyone. Not so. If you look at verses 4 and 5 in regard to these, that is all those shameful practices, they think, that is the rest of the people, think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation speaking evil of you. Not too long before Janice and I moved to Rosenberg. That's a long time ago. A couple was baptized with their two children. Fred and Delta Snyder and Cindy and her brother Randy were all baptized the same night. Remember Cindy? Fred told me sometime later that 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 action... Of becoming a Christian. Cost him and Delta all of their friends. Their friends. Like Fred and Delta were doing things. That they shouldn't have been doing. And when Fred and Delta stopped doing those things. The friends said. We don't want anything to do with you anymore. They didn't congratulate them. They didn't welcome them. Thinking they had done the right thing. They, They said we're through with you. It's a costly thing. To be a Christian. Verse 7 of 1 Peter 4 begins in an ominous way. But the end of all things is at hand. Commentators and Bible students are not agreed on exactly what that means. It could mean the end of the world. The end of the world is at hand. The problem with that is that Jesus in Matthew 24, verse 36 says, But of that day and hour no one knows. That is His second coming, which would be the prelude to the end of the world. Nobody knows that. So unless Peter had been given some inside information that nobody else had, he couldn't necessarily be talking about the end of the world. Some think he's anticipating the destruction of Jerusalem. If this letter were written about 67 A.D. or so, the Roman vice is already beginning to close on Jerusalem, and within three years, Jerusalem would be no more. And in effect, Judaism would be no more. The end was coming for Judaism. It might be better, though, to think that Peter has something else in mind, and that is that there is one impending event of consequence that is yet to come. We've lived through the ages. We've lived through the patriarchal age and the Mosaic dispensation. We're living in the Christian era now, and there's only one thing left to come, and that is the coming of Jesus. And it is at hand Not necessarily today or tomorrow or the next day. We don't know when. But it's the next thing that's going to happen. And then everything is going to be over. There's one other possibility. Maybe not a good one, but it could mean death. Those of us who have gotten older realize the end is at hand. It's it's coming closer. Now is your salvation, the apostle wrote, nearer to you than when you first believed. Every day, you and I draw closer to death, no matter how old we are. Following this announcement of the end of all things is at hand, Peter sets out some very practical advice about ways that Christians should spend the rest of their time. Whatever time you've got left, this is how you ought to spend it and i think we can benefit from what he writes to those christians of that day and i would like for us to change it to the rest of our time how are you and i are going how are you and i going to live the rest of our time first peter would say you need to be praying seriously second part of verse 7 says therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers are we you and I are we praying seriously? Are we just saying words, just going through the motions? Or do we understand what we're saying and are we intent and are we serious about it? Jesus warned in Matthew six verse seven When you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think they will be heard for many their many words. Wrote prayers, prayers that are just regurgitated again and again, might fit that category. It may not be many words, but it's the same words without any thought for the words. Now don't misunderstand what I'm saying, please. I believe that you can say the same thing many times and mean it every time you say it. Husbands, when you tell your wife, I love you, Even if you tell her every day, and more than once a day, you better mean it every time you say it. And you can. But there's a danger of saying the same things over and over again. I was thinking about a wonderful old man who was a part of this church years ago. He's dead now. But you know... One thing really bothered me about his prayers, I could have written them out in advance before he prayed them. Because he said the same thing every time he prayed. I mean publicly. Every time he prayed, he said the same things. Now, did he mean them every time? I hope so. But, but it seemed as if he were just saying the same prayer over and over and over again. That doesn't sound like serious praying. That praying seriously would also include asking in faith. James 1, verse 6, James warns against asking with doubt in our minds. And in verse 7 of the same chapter, he assures us that if we ask with doubt in our minds, if we don't ask in faith, it will bring us nothing. It's fruitless, useless. Are we praying seriously? And next, Peter urges that we love fervently. Verse 8. And above all things, having fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Notice four points about this particular verse. Above all things. Peter is not saying this is the only thing. This is not, this is not the only thing. But he is saying this is something of such a Great importance that it has to be a priority. It must be at the forefront. We use a similar expression. By all means. We we don't mean that's the only thing. But by all means, do this. Have fervent love. How do we practice brotherly love? That's what he's talking about. We practice it fervently. That word that Peter uses literally means to stretch out. Therefore, it means to do something intensely, earnestly, strenuously. There's nothing casual or indifferent about this kind of love. Peter's already stressed this. If you look back at chapter 1 and verse 22... He has written already, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Now listen, folks. If Peter includes these two things about fervent love so close together, I think it must mean something not only to him, but the Holy Spirit who directed his words. Love one another fervently. We start with those closest to us. If you're a member of this congregation, you should love your brothers and sisters in Christ here. This is your family. This is your spiritual foundation. This is where you gather your strength from week to week and day to day for your brothers and sisters in Christ. It starts here. But we're a brotherhood too. Don't forget that. Earlier in chapter 2, verse 17, the same apostle wrote, love the brotherhood. How do we do that? We can love people we see every week. How do we love those we don't see, don't know, will never know? Well, we can't have the same interaction with them as we have here, but we can have the same love for them by showing that love. How do we do that? One of the surest ways to do it is to pray for them. You have to be very careful about being picky about prayers that are led publicly. But but let me just suggest this, please, and take it for what it's worth. It's wonderful to pray for us, but we're not the only ones. And, and and truthfully, we don't pray much for the rest of the brotherhood. We don't pray for a lot for Christians all over the world, but we should because they're our family too. I've I've been embarrassed at times when I go to when I've gone to India because almost every time I've gone, the Indian Christians tell me. We pray for you every time we meet. And he doesn't mean me, the Graver Road Church. We pray for you every time we meet. What about covering a multitude of sins? What does Peter mean by that? Well, it means covering with forgiveness. It's akin to Psalm 32, verse 1. The psalmist wrote, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Those are not two different ideas. Transgression being forgiven and sin being covered. They're parallel statements. They mean exactly the same thing. It doesn't mean covering up sins by ignoring them or acting as if they don't matter. And in fact, our fervent love may cause us to have to confront people in Christ who are not doing what they should be doing. And that's difficult. But let me say this to you, my dear friends. If somebody ever has to confront you for the way you're living or the way you're not living, don't be mad at them. Be happy that somebody cares enough for you that they will actually speak to you to try to get you to do the right thing. And dear Christian friends, if you're the person who has to do that, don't apologize for it. Because it's a sign of love. We need to ask ourselves, how well are we doing individually and collectively in what Peter urges us to do? Love one another fervently. Is your relationship here with this church merely casual? Or do you really care about people here? There was a man who lived uh, close to the close of the New Testament. His name was Tertullian. Not everything that Tertullian wrote uh, was accurate. But, but here's one thing that he wrote that really is worthwhile. In observing the, the people around Christians... He wrote, look, they say, how they love one another. Tertullian was saying these non-Christians see evidence of the fact that we love each other. By this, Jesus said, shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Peter isn't through. We should also be showing hospitality, verse 9. The word literally means being friendly to strangers. And, and, and here's the idea in the first century. Inns or places to stay in that time often catered to people of low morals. Just to be frank, they were often little more than houses of prostitution. And so Christians would feel very uncomfortable staying at those kinds of places. And because of that, Christians would open up their homes to travelers so that they could have a safe place to stay. But Peter says, you've got to do this with the right attitude. Don't grumble about this because you have to show hospitality. Rejoice in it. And we don't have the identical situation today. But that doesn't mean we dismiss the idea out of hand. We may not have to open up our houses to people who are traveling from place to place. But we can be generous like those early Christians were. There are a couple of boxes out in the foyer. That's one of the ways we do it, isn't it? You will never see the people likely who will get those things that you're giving for the Philippines. doesn't matter because you want to show hospitality to strangers. When there's a storm and our brethren are affected by it or sometimes even when our brethren aren't affected by it, we raise money to help those who are in need. That's practicing hospitality. Peter isn't finished yet because he says we should be using our gifts Verse 10, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Christians are told to to use their gifts, recognizing that they are stewards of those gifts. A steward was a household manager, a person who took care of what belonged to another. And so we recognize from the very outset that what we've been given is not really ours. It is a gift of God. And we are to use what God has given us so that others can be helped and he can be glorified in it. That means any gift should be recognized as coming from God due to his grace, not our abilities. And that would remove any kind of pride or arrogance from the gifted one because it's all up to the one who gives, not the one who gets. Now, we know that there were spiritual gifts in the first century that enabled, to do people, enabled people to do things that they couldn't normally do as humans. Speak in tongues, prophesy, heal others. But those things have passed away. And, and even in the first century, there were what we could rightly call natural endowments that God gives to be used for good. We don't have the time to look at it, but Romans 12, verses 7 and 8 has a mixture of those gifts. And it is very clear that not all of those gifts are miraculous gifts. Those are gifts that people just seem to have. The gift of, of giving, the gift of, of, of helping. Correct stewardship of gifts is going to give glory to God, as we see in verse 11. We want our light to shine, folks. But not so we can be praised. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five sixteen, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father in heaven. That's why we want to use our gifts so that God can get glory from them. And then just one more, and that is, Peter says we should be speaking only what God has spoken. Verse 11 begins this way. If any man speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. That that can and likely does refer to public speaking. We've used it a lot to talk about preachers. We want to hear God's message for man, not human opinions from man. And I believe this church has had a history of the elders expecting that anyone standing in this pulpit is going to deliver God's message, not their message. And I believe that's going to continue in the future. But let's not overlook something in this verse. And that is that he says, If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. All of us, as we try to teach others, want to be sure that we're presenting God's Word, not our Word. And we understand as we try to help others to learn the Bible that God's Word is powerful, Romans one sixteen That it is penetrating, Hebrews 4 verse 12. That's our mission, to use God's Word so that God can have the glory. Let's wrap this up. When you and I talk about the rest of our time, we don't really know what we're talking about as far as our time. James warns us in James 4.14, you do not know what will happen tomorrow. My friends, you understand you do not know what will happen five minutes from now, an hour from now, a day from now, a week from now. You don't know what will happen. And so that means that we ought to make every moment count, every day count. And we do that by living the kind of lives that will not only affect others correctly, but will glorify God eternally. If you're a Christian, that ought to be your goal, to live effectively as a Christian. And if you're not living that way, you need to change. And we offer an invitation, not to shame you, but to help you, so that if you are not living as you ought to be living, you get it right. And if we can help you get it right, we will, because we love you. If you can do it privately, if it's something you just need to talk to God about yourself, do it. But if you need to do it publicly, we want to help you. If you're not a Christian... You can't really be doing these things that Peter is talking to Christians about. And so you need to put your trust in Jesus as the Son of God, your only possible Savior. And based upon that faith in Him, turn away from your sins. Make that mental resolve that says, I'm not going to live the way I've been living. And then to confess before others your faith in Him and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. If you haven't done that and want to do it this morning, let us help you while we stand and sing.